Hi, this is Randall Glazer, co-founder of JetSet Rehab Education, and this is our podcast. Today's guest is April O'Connell. She's an occupational therapist, and she's teaching a course for us on October 3rd, 2020. So if you guys are like me, you're going to listen to this podcast, and then you're going to go back to the books and try to understand some of the complexity of what she's saying. If that is you, I strongly encourage you to take our online class on October 3rd. Turn those weaknesses into strengths because listening to her talk and just having a general conversation with her, I realized how much I don't know about the hand. And I think that talking with her, it encouraged me to kind of dig down and do a little bit of research and fill those knowledge gaps. Also, a big thank you to Jalen Part. He is only eight years old, but guess what? He made the theme music to this podcast. I think he did a great job. And I hope everybody enjoys the show and let us know what you think of it. All right. I'd like to introduce to the show April O'Connell. Welcome to the Jet Set Rehab Education Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, we're recording this amidst a lot of wind and fires and stuff going around, so we had to improvise. Sorry for the sound. Um, I'll, I'll just go right out and ask you a few questions because you are teaching a course for us in Los Angeles this January, and we just wanted um, a lot of the people that follow our blogs and everything to kind of um, hear how dynamic of a speaker you are because um, I think this is going to be a really great course. I really appreciate it. Well, so I'm uh, just hot from ASHG, which is the American Society for Hand Therapy, and I got to teach a little bit on this topic while I was there. So anyone who went to D.C. for the annual uh, conference that was there, they would have gotten a sneak peek. Um, but it's it's something that I'm passionate about, and I've been teaching about it for several years now, and uh, I hope to really change the industry and how we're treating these types of injuries. Yeah, and we got we got to meet each other in Kauai at our course last year in Kauai. So one that of the, was a fantastic course. Yeah, one of my favorites for sure. Um, the the one thing that I thought was interesting is you are an occupational therapist, but you're here right. taking con ed, and we're working. I mean, basically, most of the class was on the hip, and I was wondering. You know, I know a lot of occupational therapists, and I don't know a lot that will go outside of where you know the quote-unquote boundaries of the profession to start working on rehab hips i just wondering like what is it about you that got you to do something that a lot of people in your profession don't generally do so i think one of the 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 facts with our profession with ot's i mean one of the things that we learn in school that's ingrained into us is treating the whole body being patient-centered looking at their entire roles their function their occupation right as an ot we look at the patient's occupations Mm -hmm. in life um so if we are myopic in our thinking and as hand therapists only treating their hands and their elbows and shoulders and not looking at anything else down the kinetic chain, then we're really doing ourselves and our patient and really, frankly, our profession a disservice. So that's not to say that I'm going to see a patient who has shoulder pain 
and let's say they're an athlete and I, I notice that they have limited internal rotation of their hip, I'm not going to treat their hip necessarily. I might give them some stretches and give them some um, tips or recommendations. But if I think that there's any pathology that's involved, I'm going to make a, um, a referral straight to physical therapy or an orthopedic orthopedist to look at their hip. So I think it's, it takes a very savvy therapist to basically look at the patient as a whole and not just put ourselves in a box saying, well, I only treat the hand, therefore, you know, this is my lane, I'm sticking, I'm staying in my lane. Like, it's important to just look at the whole freeway, right? And Mm -hmm. say, okay, these are all the different lanes, and there could be something happening in this lane that is going to directly affect my lane. So, and you have to know, and you have to know when that's the right time to refer out. Um, And you don't want to go rogue necessarily and go beyond your scope of practice, but it is really important to understand how the whole body is connected because really that is what we were taught in OT school. Mm -hmm. You know, treat the body as a whole person. All right, and is that something you, like you said, not necessarily treat, but you're looking at like this entire kinetic chain. Yeah, and then uh, I just feel like that's um, a, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, well, you know, I think at NYU, so I work at NYU, and that's where I'm based out of in New York, and we have a really special team of therapists. So I work um, very closely with a team of exercise physiologists and PTs, and um, we set up um, a baseball lab where we're looking at 3D motion analysis, EMG activity, and also force plates into the pitching mound for mm-hmm. pitchers. And this is something that I started because I was seeing all these patients from all over um, nationally with Tommy John's. And initially I was like, well, let's see if we can work on this epidemic of Tommy John surgeries. And the more research I did about making this baseball lab, I realized, you know what, this is, you know, if I'm just looking at the elbow, I'm really doing these patients a disservice. I have to look at everything, the mechanics, how much force they're generating from the ground up, and how that will effectively direct their elbow. So that was really what was eye-opening. And the first, I think what for me, and I'm not paid by anybody, so I have no disclaimer, mm-hmm. but the first um, real education I got about this was when I took a course at, um, it's now called Exos, but it used to be at, um, Athletic Performance and in Arizona. And they, um, the, the instructor there was talking about dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. And that just spoke to me, this whole theory and practice on how to look at um, people um, looking at them from, you know, like baby positions, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. from a growth and developmental standpoint and getting people in different positions and different exercises and how that can affect your patient's performance, whether they're an athlete, whether they're an 80-year-old lady, or whether they're a 16-year-old who, you know, wants to, um, you know, play football or baseball on the weekends so you can apply these types of techniques um but again it looks at the entire person as as a whole and that really speaks to me and i think as an ot we should really take more courses that are similar to that because you you look at these myofascial chains that start from the ground up um and that can really affect your whole your whole practice so for example as an ot one of the most common things that we treat is carpal tunnel syndrome I don't do anything with their hands. And in fact, the research will say hmm. the more gripping activities that you can do, the more you're going to activate the lumbricals, which will go into the carpal tunnel and increase intracarpal pressure, and that can irritate the median nerve. So I stay away from all hand exercises, and I go directly to the um, postural exercises, 
directly to the core, directly to the pillar and stabilizing their trunk. Um, if I can get them to be more active, more erect, more upright, and stronger through their proximal musculature, they will do so much better. And I also integrate some uh, Mark Butler nerve bites, which um, have been, you know, validated for uh, nerve gliding. So you try to stick yeah. to the research of what the evidence is, but I think, you know, if you're just doing, you know, gripping exercises and ultrasound, which there is clearly no evidence for, you're doing your patients a disservice. They're not going to get any better necessarily. Yeah, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Um, yeah, go so on. I think, yeah. you know, this is how I based my whole tendon lecture was a, around what is the evidence out there for mm. treating extensor and flexor tendons? What is the best evidence? And then I take the highest grades of evidence. So I start with clinical practice guidelines, and then I go down to systematic reviews. Um, and then here and there I will take really good randomized controlled trials uh, that are, you know, maybe a level one evidence. Um, and from there, I've based um, the protocols that we're now using for our flexor and extensor tendons um, based on evidence and what is out there and not going on these old protocols that people are just comfortable using because they've been around forever. Got it. And then uh, just to follow up on that, like what is the current evidence saying is the best way to treat some of these uh, tendon injuries? So, you know, what we're realizing now and what every systematic review is coming out with very strongly with good evidence for is early active motion. Um, now, mm -hmm. of course, it depends on each patient, right, patient to patient. And we always want to get um, guidance from the physician on what type of surgery was done, whether other comorbidities with the patient. Um, and communication with the surgeon is absolutely key. But early active motion with extensor and flexor tendons for the most part, for the majority of zones, is um, is really where the evidence is going. So we're, we've known that, I think, now for a good, let's say, five to 10 years, where people are becoming more comfortable with moving these patients around day three, day four, day five, where it used to be you wouldn't start moving them actively until day 21, when we know that now the remodeling phase of um, or the pro proliferative phase of uh, healing is, you know, well underway in terms of developing collagen, type 1 and type 3 collagen. Mm -hmm. But now we know that the sooner we move them in a protected motion, the stronger the tendons will actually be and the better rate of excursion they will have. And then uh, just to contrast with that, with uh, what do you feel like, you know, when, when you're teaching and uh, talking to a lot of your students, what are most people across the country doing to treat these injuries? Is it uh, any uh, so difference? Been, yeah. Yeah. It's been really interesting. Um, so I've been traveling around all over the all over the country now teaching this, this course. Mm -hmm. And it's been quite interesting because people are still doing protocols that were developed in the 1970s and the 1980s. And this, this is what the doctors are prescribing. Um, wow. They're doing Kleinart protocols where you're making these very elaborate splints. Um, and just in terms of the geometry that the splint requires in order to um, replicate the line of pull for the flexor digitorum profundus, it's very intricate. And the majority of therapists, I'd say 90% of therapists, probably don't exactly know how to make these splints correctly. So you're never going to get the exact amount of excursion that you need in order for the flexor digitorum profundus to glide um, especially with a small finger. We have a very small moment arm and you're not getting a lot of gliding. So 
you're setting these patients up for failure and for a second surgery, um, which is penalysis. So what's interesting is that most doctors will say, hey, listen, this has been safe, this has been proven, we've been doing this for so many years, I'm going to stick with what I know. Um, but they're not looking at the patient, looking at this from the patient's perspective. So now the patient is in this splint where they're not able to move at all for at least three and a half weeks. And then they're starting to slowly move but protective motions up until about six weeks when the splint is discharged. And then it's not until about week 12 to week 14 that they can really use their hand normally. And think about the implications that might have on someone's work. See, they're a single parent and that those kids are relying on their mother or father to take care of them um, or that's the only source of income that they have and now they're out on disability and they're not getting their full paycheck and I don't you know in right. New York City the rent here is astronomical so if someone every week that a person misses is really detrimental to possibly to, you know to their their life mm-hmm. so what we're um, advocating for is getting these patients moving sooner so they can go back to their life much sooner. Um, and another thing the doctors don't take into account is it's like, oh, no big deal. We'll just do a tenolysis after three or six months. But then that's another surgery. That's more health care bills, more medical bills, more time out of work where they're losing income. So if we can prevent that second surgery from happening in the first place, I think this is you know really a groundbreaking thing. And that's what I'm hoping to change. All right, great. Uh, initially, um, how did you get started teaching in, uh, talking about specifically tendon injuries? Um, so we had an opportunity, uh, about, about four years ago, myself and the hand surgeon to do a poster for the American Association of Orthopedic Surgery. And that was a conference that was held in Vegas in 2015. So in 2014, we all collaborated myself and I think it was four of the hand surgeons and their four fellows and we all went to Vegas and presented this and it was a great way to see at that time it, the, the title was flexor tendons what do we know and where do we go um and that same year we went to the Bahamas for another conference a big surgery conference for Ooh. the hand nice. and we um yeah it was it was fantastic yeah. if you're going to do a conference Bahamas is, is a great way to be great place to be um so we were there and um you know, over my ties and whatnot in the Bahamas, we started talking about tendon injuries. And one of our plastic surgeons who works at Bellevue, who I'm close with, he had just presented a poster on using a relative motion type orthosis for flexor tendon injuries. And this was a you know a you know a new concept that um, they've been doing for extensor tendon injuries since the 1970s, but not for flexor tendon injuries. And he did a cadaveric study that did it for zone three, so not um, the zone two, which is notorious for more ruptures, um, mm-hmm. but he found that you could use this type of splint for zone three. Um, so from there, we decided, well, maybe we can play around with this. So moving forward, we were actually asked to present our poster at another surgical conference in 2016 um, in Austin, Texas. And when I was speaking there with my two surgeons, Somebody um, heard me speak, the president of ASHT, and asked if I could present at ASHT in 2017, and that was in Anaheim. And at that time, we started playing around with this type of um, splint, this new type of relative motion-like splint. Um, And it created a big buzz, Um, and from there, I was pushed to, if I wanted to study this, I should get an IRB, 
and really do a formal study. So that is really from that conference. Um, it motivated us to uh, get an IRB and start formally studying this. We're um, looking for a grant uh, that we'll be applying for just to look at ultrasound. So we're going to look at everything under ultrasound so we can see exactly what how the tendons are gliding with this new type okay. of splint and, and go from there. So it's, it's really exciting. Um, and I don't know, I'm certainly not the you know, the guru on it. Um, I defer that to um, someone named Rosalind Evans. She's written a lot of um, literature on this topic, um, as has another woman named Julian Howell, who has, she's basically the guru with relative motion splinting. Um, and they both have excellent papers that you can search on a PubMed. If you're, for anyone who wants to know more about flexor or extensor tendon injuries, I would defer to some of the papers that have been published by those two. Um, they're really, really great. Okay, I love how it all started with uh, my ties. That's exactly what my we're trying to promote in Jet State. Everything should start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, one more question. Yeah, that's the Jet Set model right there. Stay after class. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I would recommend you doing uh, a conference in the Bahamas because that was a really, really fun course. Okay. We actually didn't go to too much of the course. <laughs> all right. You don't have to twist my arm. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I know you got to pick up your daughter, so we'll just do one more question and let you get out of here. Sure. Okay. Um, every okay. patient wants to get better faster. So what are some general tips or pearls that you can uh, quickly tell us um, and, or tell your patients to speed up their recovery? Um, so some of the things that, you know, we've looked at, and every patient wants to think that their arm is special and that will defy the laws of physics in terms of healing. Um, so in terms of speeding up, um, their recovery, then there's not necessarily much you can do. I don't, I would never underestimate the power of a very good diet. Um, and I think there's more and more coming out on how diet can affect healing and especially with chronic pain. Um, yes. so I always defer my patients to the American Cancer Research Institute and their guide, their dietary guidelines. Um, also, uh, AAOS came out with the CPG, a clinical practice guideline, after distal radius fracture surgery, that the patient should have, or before, right before surgery and then after, for a certain amount of time, they should have um, high doses of vitamin C to help decrease scarring and assist in healing. And I can tell you that that is something, not just for distal radius fractures, but any type of surgery, I would I tell every single one of my patients, please, Speak with your doctor and ask him about this because vitamin C can absolutely help decrease scar tissue. And in the hand, scar tissue is your worst enemy. So mm -hmm. they've been doing studies um, on animal models looking at injecting vi straight vitamin C into a wound and then seeing how it heals. And they're actually seeing um, huge benefits with, with these types of injections. I don't know where the stands on humans, mm -hmm. um, but... You know, one of the CPGs that they recommend is having patients take um, vitamin C before and after. And I had surgery uh, with my second daughter, um, and I can tell you I was on high doses of vitamin C per my OB, and I I was healed in less than two weeks. Um, oh, wow. And at the gym in three weeks. It was incredible, whereas my first daughter, I had surgery with her, and my, my incision didn't heal for 10 to 12 weeks. It was still open. So... I mean, I don't know if it was the vitamin C, but I 
certainly saw myself like a huge difference. I am an end of one, but it, this is a recommendation um, made by AAOS. So that is one thing I can I can attest to. I think that people should take high doses of vitamin C, but talk to the physician to get dosage information. Um, and I hear that ester C is actually a little bit easier on the stomach than other types of vitamin C. So I think that is one thing that you can do to help with scarring. Another thing that we are looking at um, is possibly using blood flow restriction therapy. I know you guys just had a course on that. Yes. And yes. using this, um, this for the systemic response um, to help aid in collagen synthesis and angiogenesis um, and tissue healing, I think can be really, really interesting. So we're actually uh, writing an IRB currently to look at healing of scaphoid fractures with blood flow restriction therapy because scaphoid fractures are notorious to um, heal very slowly. Um, but we also want to look at it possibly with flexor tendon injuries. Um, so that's in the pipeline Great. at NYU that we're looking at. Um, and, you know, the only, and again, I have nothing to declare, but the only course I will uh, recommend is Johnny Owens at Owens Recovery. They really do a great job um, in terms of the research and assisting you with anything that you need. And they you only use the um, units that are FDA approved. Yes. And uh, it, we actually did a podcast with Johnny. It's, we're we're going to release that later this month as well, right after yours, April. But uh, what you, one of the things he says along the lines of uh, what you were talking about with vitamin C is he's very big on uh, adding protein to the diet, you know, for those of us yeah. trying to build strength. Yeah, he talks about leucine, yeah. leucine mm -hmm. in and, particular. Yeah, and these are just simple things that we can recommend that make a huge difference. It actually makes our jobs easier. So I, I appreciate that uh, little, little plural yeah. they gave us. And then, uh, of course. other than that, uh, this is going to be a really good course. This is just like the tip of the iceberg of what you're going to get. We're going to do a six-hour course, and hopefully maybe uh, next year Bahamas possibly, right? <laughs> you never know. I'll go yeah. anywhere you want me to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fantastic. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate you having me. All right. Thank you, April O'Connell. That was a great interview. One of the most informative we've ever had. If you want to hear more, take her course, October 3rd, 2020. It'll be online. All the details will be at jetsetrehabed.com. And let's go out on Jalen Park's music. Thanks.